Greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. This is Art Hour, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malsom. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, um, you kind of hooked, uh, booked this guest, so who do we have today? Well, we have Lena Crow. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Uh, Crow. It's Crow. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, good. And it, it actually got started because uh, Lena agreed to, I'm doing something in my English classes right now, my sophomore English classes, where I'm asking local writers to select a story and read it with the uh, students and talk about it. And um, I've already had uh, Sam Ligon do it and I've had um, Chris Cook was scheduled to do it and then we got winded out. Um, and I just, I, you know, I had read about Lena and I thought I'll just go on her website and give it a shot. And, uh, and she responded right away and said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And so she's coming to my class. You're coming to my class on Friday. That's correct. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be fun. So welcome Lena. Thank you for agreeing to come to my class and agreeing to talk to us on the radio. Yeah, for sure. Happy to chat with you guys. And yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to your students on Friday. It'll be fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way. I mean, everybody's been talking to you recently about this kind of, um, I don't know, I, would I call it magical or kind of out of the blue? Or, I mean, I, I don't know what to call it, but it probably seems like it was just out of nowhere. Can you tell us uh, about this story that you sold to Hollywood? Yeah, um, it did. It very much felt like this like lightning struck strike of dumb luck. Um, and people who don't know the story think that I engineered this, that I have some like that I've got Hollywood hookups and I'm wheeling and dealing and I am not. Um, I am like the person who like, I don't know, like when I was a little kid, I think everybody has this fantasy, right? That like you're, you're talented in some way and you're going to be discovered and like you're going to be famous for some reason. Somebody's going to be like that kid. That's right. like literally what happened, except I'm an adult in Spokane, Washington, who is otherwise being largely unsuccessful at literally everything. Um, but yeah, I had written this story, uh, Sinkhole, um, originally for Lilac City Fairy Tales about five years ago. It was republished in Moss, which is a great magazine. Um, but I thought that that was really the extent of its life. Uh, the editor from Moss um, has since sort of started to try to get some work in Hollywood with the notion of taking um, writing from the Pacific Northwest, specifically from that magazine, and trying to introduce it to people who um, option work for film. And he started with Sinkhole um, and wound up getting connected with an agent who was able to get it in the hands of some people who wound up being really, really interested in it. And um, there actually ended up being a, a bidding war for it, which was like the craziest thing in the world. Cause I was like, whoever wants it, that's cool. Like let's just give it to whoever. And it wound up being this huge deal. I talked to a number of different production companies and studios and ultimately uh, decided to go with, with Universal, um, with uh, Issa Rae and Jordan Peele through, uh, through their production companies. Um, does it still feel weird to say that out loud? It does. It feels <laughs> very, very surreal. Um, I decided to go with Universal. Yeah, right? Like, it's just no, so was, casual. Was, like, was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no big deal. Um, so, yeah, very, very strange, very amazing luck. 
um, which then has, has opened other doors for me that actually feel like, even though that, like, that's such a big deal, it's not what I was looking for. I wasn't trying to sell work in no. Hollywood. What I was trying to do was find a literary agent for the novel I've been working on for the last five years. And the sale of Sinkhole finally got, um, allowed me to do that. It got me the attention of agents who work in the genre that I work in. And I wound up getting a, a wonderful literary agent who then was subsequently able to sell both that novel and uh, a mostly finished short story collection that's going to contain Sinkhole um, to Viking. The novel will come out in the summer of 2022. The short story collection doesn't have a publication date yet because it's not finished, um, but potentially 2023. So like, that's really for me, the big thing, even though I know like the big thing looks like, oh my gosh, you sold Sinkhole to Universal. Um, for me, it was so strange that that's not even, that's not even the big deal. The big deal is yeah. the novel because that's what I really wanted the whole time. Well, and we were talking to another author who had sold his work um, to Hollywood, and it seems like once that happens, it's just pretty much out of your hands. You're just out of the process, correct? Yeah. Um, the you know the producers and ultimately whoever the screenwriter is can come back to me if they want creative input, but they don't have to. Um, at this point, it is theirs to do what they want. Um, and I think that's great. I kind of think that that's actually one of the most exciting parts of this is getting to see Sinkhole have this second life beyond me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, that's another funny thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of the the news stories that came out reported and correctly that um, I'm an executive producer, but it doesn't mean anything. It's a right. meaningless title. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I read Sinkhole and then I read your... Um, your short story collection. Um, and what's interesting to me about sinkhole is, I mean, it feels, cause you mentioned, and we'll get to this in a little bit. So I want to talk about, you said in the genre that I write in, and I've read that you kind of have a couple of names for this genre you write in. So I do want to talk about that, but um, sinkhole almost feels like, and I don't know this feel, it, it feels weird to say this, but it almost feels like a Rorschach test in that, so many other of your stories have a, have a density to them of a lot of detail and it feels like sinkhole is stripped down and you can kind of put whatever you want into it. Do you feel like it's different from some of the other stories that you've written? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like for exactly that reason is it, it is so stripped down and the stories in the collection are, they're much denser, they're much longer, they're much more, the characters are more developed, like there's not, um, that porousness to them. And it's really a function of it having been a Lilac City fairy tales story, was that there was a word count limit. Um, so I couldn't write something long, uh, which is really more my, my MO left to my own devices. I write, you know, 20 page stories. Um, so it was a good exercise, but I think that's also what was so appealing to the various production companies who'd been on it was that it is this sort of open concept that you can buy the idea of the sinkhole and then you can go do whatever you want with it because there isn't this whole novel's worth of material that you have to adhere to. Yeah. And based on the production company who bought it, I would presume that they're going to do something entirely different than you were doing with it when you uh, wrote that story. Yeah. A hundred percent. Both in terms of, I think that 
genre wise, they might go a different direction than me, but also, um, and I've discussed this other places as well. Like, um, I'm a white person. When I write characters, I assume they're white. Um, Jordan Peele and Issa Rae are going to make a movie with black people and looking at the story from that perspective. And so that's another move that takes it beyond me, beyond my perspective. Um, and again, I think that that's, that's exciting. Well, and even then, as you're talking about that, um, I mean, it, once you he, kind of see it through their eyes, you go, oh, now I see what they could do with this a little bit. But it's interesting having the story go out of your hands. I was reading also one of the interviews you said where in Sinkhole, um, the husband character, you you didn't perceive him as a bad guy, but so many people are coming to you afterwards, really not liking that character. Does that, that must feel weird to have people take your story and do something different than you meant to do. <laughs> um, that I'm kind of used to. I think that oftentimes interpretations of like, because a lot of what I write is magical and strange and has these odd elements to it. Oftentimes people will pick up on things that I didn't intend. Um, and again, I think that that's kind of fun, but yeah, absolutely. You know, when people are like that husband, whew, man, this is like about the patriarchy. And I'm like, I think he's just a little clueless. He's not a bad guy. I don't know. It's not what I meant, but that's fine. Like, um, you know, that's right. The joy of, of literature is people take different things from it. Like Jordan Peele and, and looking at some of his past, his most recent movies, having uh, that just kind of the, the general uh, theme where something goes in the hole and comes back improved, uh, I, man, I can just see that as a perfect uh, fit for what Jordan Peele could do with that, that space that that story allows. Yeah, it's going to be really cool, right? <laughs> I'm pretty excited for whatever it's going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get back to, um, you have a couple of terms for your genre, because you do kind of write in a genre. It's not magical realism. Um, Sharma coined a term, Sharma Shields coined a term. How would you describe the genre that you write in? Yeah, so um, I usually call it domestic fabulism, which I think of as adjacent to magical realism, but whereas magical realism uses sort of what would be more traditionally considered magical elements, um, fabulism is just anything that's strange. So like the elements of the stories where there's just something otherworldly or that couldn't happen in our world going on. And then um, I call it domestic fabulism because it's usually in a domestic setting or it's in a very strange setting, but the problems are domestic. Then Sharma gave me this other term, which I love so much. Um, she called it fiction science uh, because it's not true science fiction. I'm not a science fiction writer, but I play with elements of science and nature um, in ways that science fiction writers do, but I do it in a little bit of a different way. And so I love that term too, of sort of that playfulness of, uh, of yeah, those, those components. Um, so those are the two, two terms that I, I use to define the genre. Yeah, and as I was reading your stories, it seems like there are times where I just feel like it's so close to reality that I'm, it, I, some of the things I think, is that real? Like I, when I was that you were the story that you were writing about the Palouse. Um, I knew you were going to say that one. Everyone has to go look up whether or not those snakes are real. Is <laughs> <laughs> that a cob snake? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Okay, and I couldn't find it. 
<laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, all right. But it was it was so close. And that's the thing that I love about it is it it's strange, but it just feels like your world is just tilted about two degrees on its axis. So <laughs> yeah, I I I kept yeah, I, I would look at things like that and even um with Spud one and Spud Two, it with uh, I mean, is that a real spaceship? And it's close enough. It's not like, you know, if you're reading a science fiction novel, you're just assuming they're making a whole bunch of stuff up. But with yeah, with yours, it's just so close to reality. It was interesting. And then uh, before we started uh the interview, it seems like the last story in your piece um uh, with the squids um squid days mm-hmm. mr Stills' squid days is how it yep, is called. that's right yeah. that feels like a kind of a straight story that's a lot less about the sciencey aspect and a little bit more just about the tricks memory plays on you does that one feel different to you yeah um that story has sort of an interesting life to it. So it's the longest one in the collection. Um, In a collection of long stories, it's the longest one. It's nearly novella length. It's almost 50 pages um, uh, when it's, you know, typed in a Word document. And it took me a long, long time to write it. I wasn't sure what it was for a long time, but you're absolutely right. It's more, it's much more interested in the character and her relationship to these memories that she's having. And the memories are very strange. their memories of something fantastical, right? Of the squid uh, appearing on the beach in Santa Cruz through, through (laughs) different ways. Um, And, you know, she's, she's looking to solve that mystery. Um, And I think that what, what I wanted to do with that story was, uh, you know, short stories are so often like kind of gut punches like they don't have, because they don't have the range of a novel, they rarely get a satisfying ending. I wanted a story to end the collection with that didn't feel punitive, that didn't feel like you were being punched in the gut, um, that had like, it's not a happy ending, but it's kind of a nice ending. It ends in a like, like a nice space. Um, and I wanted that for, for the end of the collection. And so that's sort of the I don't know the the reason it's at the end, why it ultimately is what it is. But I think you're right that it has like a, a tonally different feel um, than some of the other pieces, particularly the pieces earlier in the collection, which are I think much darker and stranger. Sure. Well, and I, I mean, I'm just full disclosure, I have to admit that last story, couple of tears. Got <laughs> no joke. As soon as I saw what was going to happen at the end, I'm like, oh no, no, this isn't going to happen. And then it happened. I went, oh, that, no, I thought it was, I thought it was very, very happy. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was very satisfying. Um, especially like you say, when you've gone through all that darkness, it just feels like a relief to have this person kind of have this feeling. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, I thought that, and, but it, it was, I mean, it, that's not to denigrate any of the other stories. It just felt so uh, different. And, and I feel bad because now people listening on the radio, they're like, well, I haven't read this book of short stories and we're kind of, uh, and Mike's probably thinking the same thing. But I just, I mean, I just finished it last night. So I kind of wanted to talk about, it. I could talk about it more, but let's just, let's talk about you a little bit. I know you're not from Spokane. So um, how did you get here? Yeah, um, I grew up in Southern California. I'm from Orange County originally, um, which, like, even as a small child, I was like, I don't belong here. This isn't this isn't right. Um, uh, so I moved. Uh, I went to college at UC Santa Cruz, and it was just sort of a gradual like moving north from there. Like then I I 
uh, got a job working in journalism in Seattle. And I spent about five years working at um, just like small and failing newspapers. Um, it was like, I think I got to Seattle in 2007. And then, you know, the economy tanked and like print newspapers were just like, we're dead, we're dying, we're dying right now. And I was like working at all of those. And I was a bad journalist. Um, so I did that for about five years. <laughs> Is that what you always wanted to do in writing? Did you want to be a journalist um, first? I did. I thought I, I, it wasn't like a lifelong dream, but it was something that I'd been pursuing in college. I'd written for the, the newspaper at UC Santa Cruz and um, had then worked uh, for an all-weekly in Santa Cruz after I graduated. And so that was, journalism was, was my plan. Um, and, but yeah, once I, I got into it, it was very hard to make a living um, to find something stable. And I was, it, I was just not well-suited to it. I'm not... Uh, like calling people on the phone and asking them questions is like terrifying. And I don't know why I didn't make this connection earlier where I was like, Oh, the part where you talk to people to find out. That's the job. Yeah. That's like the whole job. And I was so uncomfortable and bad at it. Um, And like, just like, I was, you know, really young too and would have these just, horribly awkward interactions and then like write things that were like accidentally offensive to people. And like, um, for a while I worked for a paper that was free in Bellevue and people would call like the most common call we would get was please stop sending me this free newspaper. (laughs) Like everything was just so discouraging. Um, so after about five years of that, um, I was started thinking like, okay, I need to make a change. If I could do anything, if I could do anything, what would I do? I thought, well, if I could do anything, I would write fiction. That would be my job. I would write fiction, like, which isn't really a job. But, um, and my mom, who is always a great advocate for more school, was like, you know, you can go to school for that. And I was like, yeah, I guess. And she was like, you should go get a master's degree. And I was like, okay. Um, so I applied to MFA programs and was accepted at Eastern. And um, that's when I came over to Spokane was for uh, graduate school at EWU, the MFA program. And um, I had a great experience there. Uh, actually, um, about half of my collection was my master's thesis. And so I was able to to finish developing that and then, you know, have that be my first book, uh, which was was great. Um, I didn't expect to stay here in Spokane. I thought that I would get my degree and then go back to Seattle. Um, but while I was in school, I met, uh, my husband and we got married and the, um, he has a, like a good, like stable job. And so there was no reason for like, what was I going to be like, let's go back to Seattle where it's really expensive. I have no prospects for a job cause I just got an arts degree. Um, and you can figure out something to do. So that wasn't going to happen. So we stayed here and it's actually been wonderful. I've really, um, uh, Mike and I were talking before uh, we started about, you know, what a vibrant and wonderful writing community we have here. And I have so many friends who are part of that community. Um, and it's like, you know, Spokane, it's a nice place to live. And we have little kids now and it's like a nice place to have kids. Mm-hmm. And so it's good. Sure. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. We got the blue! 
hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Art Hour receives support from Saga, the Spokane Arts Grant Award. Information online at spokanearts.org. If you would like to listen to any of our old shows, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts by searching for Art Hour. Yeah. Lena, when you um, were starting your trek up north in Southern California, I mean, were you also writing just for yourself um, short stories or other just writings just to, um, you know, have a creative outlet? And, and kind of like what, what actually got you started with this passion? Yeah, um, I've been writing short stories since uh, I started doing it in high school, and I was also a very regular um, uh, journal writer. Um, I kept a journal pretty religiously from the time I was in in high school until graduate school. Um, And so, yeah, that just process of of writing and writing a lot for myself um, was really, I think, formative. But more than anything, journalism, even though, again, I was very bad at it, was actually really influential in terms of fiction writing because I think it did two things for me. Um, It got me into the habit of writing every day and being able to write things quickly under any circumstance and of being able to take feedback without feeling personal about it. Um, You can't be precious about things in a newsroom because somebody's just going to come up to you and be like, the third graph, take it out. Uh, Your second source, who is it? Go figure it out. Like there's no time for being pretty. Um, And also the structure of pieces when you're writing journalism, like, you know, like you were saying about, are the cob snakes real? That's 
out of that tradition, like of here's how you explain things, here's how you present the facts. Um, you can do the same thing in fiction, you just get to make up the facts. So that's way right. better. That's what I was looking for the whole time. I don't have to call anybody, I just make it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We, uh, Eric and I interviewed both Sean Vestal and, and Jess Walter, who, um, you know, great fiction writers, but uh, we're kind of cut their chops on journalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They had the same kind of uh, approach uh, from their appreciation of journalism, how it's helped their fiction writing, something similar to what you were just saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those guys, uh, much better journalists. <laughs> but I can see too in their, in their writing, you know, that influence. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, successful fiction writers come out of other kinds of writing um, because it forces you into like, if you're just writing in an arts sense from the beginning, you have a lot of freedom and sometimes freedom is a burden. If you can learn to write under duress, I think that travels with you. Well, and it's just a matter of doing the work. I mean, uh, I mean, the, the thing that we keep coming back to, Mike and I, no matter who we interview, is inspiration is for amateurs and everybody else just gets to work. Uh, <laughs> and I think a lot of people want to be artists and they wait for the muse to speak to them and, and journalists don't. <laughs> it's like, oh, if you're waiting for the muse to speak to you, you can wait for the muse to sign your paycheck too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's my, my all-time favorite, uh, favorite quote about writing. It's like some interviewer once asked Faulkner, um, if he wrote on a schedule or if he waited for the muse to move him. And he said, uh, yes, uh, and the muse moves me from eight to noon every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me of they asked a, an attorney one time, have you ever gotten lucky on a case? And he says, yes, at two o'clock in the morning in the law library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta do the work. Yeah, do the work. Um, so uh, who were your influences? You mentioned Faulkner. Who, who kind of inspired you to write these types of stories or any type of story really, or even journalism who inspired you to do that as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely not Faulkner, not, <laughs> <laughs> not Faulkner. <laughs> uh, the only way I got through sound in the fury was that I bought a used copy that somebody had meticulously and beautifully annotated. Like every page has an explanation of what is going on. It is like, like, I keep this this book the way people clutch like their grandmother's Bible. <laughs> so I'm like, someday there's going to be a quiz where I got to know what Sound and Furies saying. <laughs> um, that didn't answer your question. Uh, in terms of, of fiction, um, there are a number of other uh, uh, women writers working in what I would call the magical realism, domestic fabulism genre, who I look to uh, pretty closely. Um, uh, Amy Bender, whose story we're going to be talking about with your class, uh, The Remember, she's yeah. a favorite of mine. Um, Kelly Link uh, is another really wonderful one. Um, I think actually uh, Sharma Shields has been a huge influence in me uh, on my work as well. Um, and, you know, speaking back to, to journalism, um, I'm kind of a compulsive reader of New Yorker profiles. Um, the, there's like such a st structure to them and, um, I know like that does it, you're like, oh yeah, I read your stories and it made me think of New Yorker profile. <laughs> like that's not, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation here, but like there's something about those that are so 
they're both formulaic and like poetic to me that I count them as an influence. Well, I mean, formulaic, yes, but I mean, a lot of great artists formulaic, you know, five act plays and all that stuff. So I don't, I don't think that's necessarily yeah. a bad thing. And I agree. I mean, you can see the structure coming a mile away, even in non-profiles and a lot of New Yorker pieces. Mm -hmm. There's a reason they keep doing it. It just works, right? Yeah. And it works in fiction too. It's like you have like, you start with what's important and then you have some action and then you back up and you go like, you know, so-and-so first started doing such and such in the year, blah, 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 blah. And then you merge that back into the other thing. And like, that's like. <laughs> so as you're talking about that, do you teach fiction? Um, yeah. Uh, well, it, I've intermittently taught a lot of different writing related things here in Spokane. Um, I had a like, okay, so after being really bad at journalism, I was a really unsuccessful adjunct instructor here in Spokane, like name a college, I've been laid off from there. Um, so I've taught comp, I've taught literature, I've taught creative writing. Um, I was also a writer, like my favorite all time teaching gig was uh, as a writer in residence for Spokane Public Schools for a couple of years and got to teach creative writing at On Track Academy um, and then um, out at, uh, at Orchard Center um, Elementary School. And uh, those are my, my favorite uh, creative writing teaching gigs by far. Um, yeah. The genre that you're... Um been working on did that did that come through just a natural thing from stuff you read as a kid or did you sort of just kind of go to the buffet table try a lot of different things and that one ended up being the one that you most resonated with I think the latter uh initially when I first started writing it was much more like realism and trying to sort of write characters who were like just slanted versions of myself or people I knew. And it felt so like there were things that I wanted to write, but it wasn't that much fun. And once I started reading um, magical realism and sci-fi and stuff that had these otherworldly elements, I was like, Oh, that's a lot more fun. And to put those into my stories, um, allowed me to be like playful in a way that made writing just much, much more enjoyable to me. Um, so by the time I was applying to grad school, uh, pretty much everything I was writing had that sort of odd element to it. I do from time to time still write stories that you would consider strictly realism, but even those are like, it's like strange. It's like, what do you people doing um like the the tiger story in the collection is there's nothing fantastical about that um especially since tiger king has come out now everybody's like oh backyard tiger <laughs> whatever uh it's you just saw a it coming. <laughs> situation yeah so um as i was thinking about those uh, those weird stories and you know weird is not that's not a mean thing to say is it? i mean you've no i like i embrace the word weird that's okay. my like yeah if it's weird it's good now that you're trying to or you are going into novel form um are you i mean how do you sustain that weirdness or are you trying to sustain that weirdness over a lot more pages <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, you just keep the weird going. You just keep that party <laughs> rolling. There's no shortage of weird in the world. Yeah, um, but it, no. 
Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I was going to say that the so the the novel that I've sold um, that'll be released by Viking is actually uh, it's historical fiction and magical realism, um, and uh, it's set here in Spokane in uh, 1889. It's about the the Spokane Fire and um, Washington's. Uh, uh, like gaining statehood in that same year um, because there's nothing that people love more than a story about, you know, government, statehood. <laughs> um, these things are fascinating to everyone. Oh, yeah. um, so it's, yeah. it's historical fiction, but then it has a magical realism element as well um, with a character who can uh, see the future and um, influence the behavior to a certain degree of those around her. And, um, the the magical elements are sort of confined to one section of the story, but there's this strangeness throughout. Like I would say, like it's like a cloud of weird. Um, and yeah, it was super fun. It was super fun to get to do that for 300 pages. Sure. Um, but then for a year and a half, I pitched it to agents who were like, I don't know what section of the bookstore this goes in. What have you written? <laughs> and nobody wanted it. But then finally, again, sinkhole and found the right person. And right. Um, yeah. So, so it worked out. how much reporting did you do for this or did you get to make it all up? <laughs> um, so I did do actually a lot of research about um, that era and Spokane and Again, statehood and also um, bank fraud. Did I mention there's like a there's oh, a financial component? All the best novels are about bank fraud. Uh, um, <laughs> so I, I did a lot, quite a lot of research. Um, uh, you know, spent some time in the the Northwest Room uh, at the the library downtown, which is uh, like such a jewel of our community. Like you just go in there and you're like, for no reason, you don't have to give any explanation. You just walk up and you're like, I want to know about this. And whoever's working there is just like, let's see, da, 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 and they go get you all of these newspaper articles about whatever weird thing you want to know about. Again, no questions asked. It's a beautiful place. Um, and, and then beyond that, I made a lot of things up. But here's my favorite part about writing about history is that history is so weird that actually a lot of the weirdest things that I put in the book are true. <laughs> and then like I made up some more normal stuff to go along with it because I was like, well, people aren't going to believe like too much weird. You got to balance it. So can you give us an example of something weird and true that is going to be in the book? Yeah, like a lot of people probably know this about like Spokane, but I didn't. Um, the Davenport Hotel was originally a waffle restaurant. Uh, after the fire, um, Louis Davenport was like, you know what people need? Waffles. And he got like one of like one of those tents that everybody would get after fires in that era. His was somehow two stories. It was a two-story tall waffle tent called the Waffle Foundry. <laughs> that was his first business. That's super weird. I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> That after, had to go in the book. Yeah, after being in Southern California growing up and then kind of going to Seattle, after you settled here in Spokane for a few years, I mean, what do you find about Spokane just as, you know, its own ethos that is either interesting, is it still have a weirdness about it through all of its uh, normalcy? Or I mean, I'd be curious to find out your take about Spokane and how you observe it through your lens. Yeah, you know, I think that I've been here long enough that um, I'm no longer seeing it as an outsider. I feel like I've I've become a spokenite in my own right. Um, 
but it feels like a much more comfortable place to me than than Southern California certainly ever did. Um, Southern California is a place where like there's one way to be and it's a terrible way to be. It's like 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 whatever reality TV show you're thinking of, that's just correct. Like all the kids at my high school were like, what car do you drive? Like, why don't you bleach your hair blonde? Like, you know, everybody dresses the same, a very, uh, uh, I don't know. I shouldn't be, it's a, it's a childish interpretation of the place. I'm sure people live there and have nice lives, but like <laughs> as a kid, I just hated it so much. Um, and leaving there was so refreshing that I feel like every place I've lived since, I'm like, this is a wonderful place. Like Santa Cruz <laughs> was wonderful. Seattle is wonderful. Spokane's wonderful. And Spokane is strange, which is great too. I think the best thing about Spokane's weirdness is that it's very surface, like it's right on the surface. Like nobody's hiding it. We're like, yeah. And, but no, but it's not like a keep Portland weird situation either, where it's like, look at the weird. It's like, no, it's just here. This is the situation. Um, if you're driving on grand, be careful. Cause there's a flock of turkeys. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the turkeys. Just, you know, be careful. And like, everybody just stops and lets the yeah. turkeys pass. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. I was going to ask what's weird about Spokane that we don't realize. And that is, that is definitely, that's definitely a weird one for sure. <laughs> So I want to get back to your book because one of the things that I loved about your book was the cover. Uh, how much of the, of the cover did you get to help design? And for people who haven't seen the book there, it's a pool and it looks kind of nice outside and there's an octopus slash squid in the background. And there's a guy in a, looks like could be an astronaut or a diving suit about ready to get into the pool. It's just this, weird it's kind of grayed out it just has i mean it really is almost perfect for the style uh that you write in how much input did you get on that um yeah so i actually didn't have much involvement in that um my publisher sent initially some sort of samples of styles by just sort of artists he had found on the internet and i was drawn to um this person who did astronaut art he'd like put astronauts in places and I think that the publisher reached out to him to see if he wanted to sell us one of those to use as the cover of the book and he did not um so the art yeah which is weird like who doesn't want to sell their work but whatever um so the the art designer for the publisher said we'll just do it ourselves and wound up creating something that was comparable, but I think is actually way better because it speaks to elements that are actually in the book rather than just taking this random piece of astronaut art. Um, and yeah, I love the cover and I think that the cover and the fact that the book has kind of a funny title really helped drive sales of it. Um, because otherwise like I'm not, a known author and short story collections aren't typically very popular, but I think people see this and they're like, ah, look at that. Oh, that's a funny title. And then they buy the book, which is cool. Um, the inside cover, I don't know if you looked closely at the, the art on the inside. I, flap. I should have. Well, um, take a look when you get a chance. That's 
Uh, I love that as well. My editor came up with that. He like sketched it on a bar napkin and texted it to me and was like, what about this for the inside? And I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at, but go for it. (laughs) And what it is, is a little like these little repeating patterns of all sorts of things from the stories. So there's snakes and tigers and people having sex and bicycles and, um, and it's like repeated over and over and over, but it's very small and very artfully done. Mostly, I don't know, I've kind of a juvenile sense of humor. So mostly I would just like, did you look inside? There's people doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of patterns in the book, your book also had something that I can't remember ever seeing, which was an index at the beginning. Uh, was that something you planned on doing all along or was that something that, I, I mean, and obviously there are thematic things that keep popping up in the, in the book. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't know it's, it was just such an odd thing to do. Tell me about how you decided to do that. Yeah. Um, that was, it was added afterwards, uh, during the editing phase. Um, so the publisher Featherproof Books is definitely a, a publisher of strange things. And when we were working with the manuscript, my editor kept being like, how can we make this weirder? (laughs) Um, And that was one of the things that I came up with was uh, that index. And I actually, I stole it from another writer, um, Anders Munson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a short story collection that's really excellent called Other Electricities, uh, which is uh, linked short stories. And then at the end, he has an index at the end, where indexes traditionally go, I'm aware that they go at the end, um, that has similarly uh, all of the the repeated elements. And then he actually goes so far as to have sort of more explanation there. So there's actually this like, these like codas to all of the stories mm. in the index. Um, so his is, it's probably 20 pages long. Um, so mine, of course, isn't that detailed, but I liked that idea of like, here's everything that you're going to see in this book. So then I put it in the front. Um, and uh, uh, I like it. I think it, you know, and it signals to readers right away, here's what's coming and you're going to see these things multiple times. And also like, this is weird. Like it's whimsical <laughs> and it's, and it's sad. Like you can read through the index and be like, oh, wow. this is some stuff's coming. Well, and I just want to say, I mean, we keep using the word weird and I, I want to, I think emphasize that the stories aren't alienatingly weird. They're just off. I mean, it's not an index that's designed to be purposely off putting. It's just what's in the stories are a little off and it's at the beginning, which makes it a little more off. So I didn't find it I mean, because I, I I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of weirdness for weirdness's sake, but I didn't I mean I didn't feel that way at all. It's just how do you take how do you take the truth and tell it slant, as Emily Dickinson <laughs> would say, you know? Um, yeah. and then speaking of weird in your book, you did you kind of had this short story that was this interstitial thing all the way in between where you'd have a couple of pages telling a story and then you'd have another story completely unrelated and then you came back to the story each time. Was that how you planned to do it or was that just a way to say, how can we make this more weird? That was another instance of how we can make this more weird. It was originally (laughs) all one story Um, and it actually originally wasn't in the book. Uh, When I first sent the manuscript to Featherproof, they there were a couple stories in it that they didn't like and they were like, what else do you have? And I sent over a few more stories and that was one of them. And the reason that I had been hesitant to put it in the manuscript was that I had never been able to publish it in a magazine. Nobody 
would ever take it. And I'd written it in grad school and it didn't get a very good reaction then either. Um, but Featherproof liked it and my editor wanted to break it up in that way because he was like, I see things in this that we could pull back to. So I then rewrote it so that its threads were a little bit more connective and also so that you could break it in a way that hopefully felt satisfying enough in each section that if you, you know, then like put it, put the book down and didn't read, get to the next section for a few weeks, you wouldn't be totally lost. Um, but yeah, I'm aware that that's a, a an unusual <laughs> thing. And I did worry that it would be alienating to have this, this like, well, why don't, why isn't this story all in one piece? Um, but folks typically tell me that they they like it or they just got frustrated and went and just read it all <laughs> yeah. through if they wanted to. Well, one of the things that the book did that I liked is you had the art uh, before you only had art before each one of those little stories. So it was easy to go back because you had dates at the beginning of each mm -hmm. one. And I was trying, like a lot of the dates were the same date. And so I, it was easy to go back and find where I was from before so that, that the art that was put in there, I thought, made it a lot easier to navigate. Was that your idea or was that your weird editor's idea again? Yeah, nope. That was the, the, the art designer again. Um, but yeah, I love that. Yeah, right. Because you can and you can even see it in the if you're just looking at the book closed, you can see where those sections are because it's a black page. And you open to it, and then yeah, it's that fun artwork of the the space shuttle and the potato crossing. <laughs> yeah, and they get a little bit past each other each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I thought that was a great idea. Uh, weird question: Are there any other stories that you? Th I mean, because I don't know, I wouldn't have picked Sinkhole as probably the most cinematic of your stories. Not that it's not the best one of your stories. It just didn't seem very cinematic to me. Is there one that you think is cinematic that you go, oh, this one would make a good movie? <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just trying to do the hard work of the producers who want to buy another story from you, uh, maybe f coming from Universal again. Right. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate you doing that. Um, yeah, at this point, I'm actually, I'm pretty like, tainted by other conversations because um, so the the film and television agent that I've been working with has been trying to now sell off literally anything else that I've ever written. She's like, well, what else we got? What else we got? Right. Strike um, while the iron's hot. Yeah. So I've been having these conversations with other places. So I know what stories sort of are and aren't interesting. Um, and end times, the, the apocalypse story um, was sort of the first, the first one after sinkhole that got, uh, got attention. Um, I have another one that'll be in the second collection um, called A Plan to Save Us All that I think is going to get optioned as well. That's actually a pandemic story. And I'm like, I didn't mean to write a pandemic story. I'm sorry, guys. I wrote it before all of this. And again, like I couldn't get it published. Nobody, magazines didn't want it. Um, but it'll be in the book. And I think uh, it looks like it's, it's going to be optioned as well. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know how I would have answered the question like prior to like all of this discussion, but I kind of, I kind of like have the answer. Well, so, it, to me, it's weird. Oh. oh, you go, Mike, you go. I was just going to ask, does that now getting published and you kind of made a little breakthrough, which is going to bring up another question here in a, in a bit for me, but does that, um, there's a certain point where you've kind of arrived, at least at a level now that you 
you're, you're selling your work and you're being recognized. Um, does that put more pressure on you to continue writing um, to meet, meet those needs of maybe what the editor wants or what you think now the public wants with this unique genre? Or does it just inspire you to be even more creative in, in how you write? That's a good question. And I think the answer is we'll see what happens. <laughs> right now, I'm very entrenched in um, revisions of the novel for uh, for the publisher and then finishing the short story collection. Um, but I think, you know, where I go next, yeah, will I feel like, oh, this is, this is what I do. This is my style. Or will I be like, let's go a different direction. I kind of feel like that genre, the domestic fabulism, my work's always going to live in that realm because those are the things that are interesting to me. Like, I feel like I'm always going to tell what are essentially family stories um, and that I'm always going to be drawn to things that are, are unusual or otherworldly. Um, but where I guess sort of the, the peculiars of it, like we'll see where that goes. I'm not sure that I'll write historical fiction again. Um, I might've gotten that one out of my system. You know, Eric and I asked uh, in one of our radio shows, we, we prompted um, musicians and, and writers, uh, those that wanted to participate with the, with a prompt of, did, what was your proudest moment or that moment, you know, where you kind of thought, man, I've at least reached this level and I feel so good about myself that I've, I'm kind of reached that point, even though we know that that's an, an ephemeral kind of a feeling, it goes away very quick, but there is an intense moment of, feeling very proud of the work that you've done and knowing that it's been recognized by others. Do you have one of those? I do. And it's like, so not what you would think, but, um, so the timing of all of this has been very fortunate because, uh, in the course of the pandemic, we lost childcare for our daughter. And then, um, over the summer, we were joined by, by our son. Uh, so I have a four-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son. And I was on parental leave from my job. And I was like, we don't have a situation where I can go back to work. Like, we don't have, like, what, what am I going to do with these kids? So I quit my job. So it was, like, fortunate that, like, the writing is taking off. Um, so I don't really need to, to work anymore. But in explaining it to my daughter, I felt like, I really felt like I was leaving my job to be a stay-at-home mom, but the explanation that we gave to her was, you know, mommy's not going to go to work anymore because she's a writer now. She's a professional fiction writer, and my daughter thinks, like, she's four, but she kind of gets this, and she was like, okay, now, like, you know, we do preschool at home, mom's a writer, like, this all gelled in her brain, I guess, because, like, my mom came over one day, um, and she was like, what are you doing? And my daughter was like, homeschool preschool because mommy doesn't go to work anymore because she's a writer now <laughs> like and hearing my daughter say she's a writer now with like this forcefulness like I was like yeah I am that's awesome that's a great story that is really great <laughs> so so now that you're kind of I mean you're in this weird period where I mean you know this is just brand new so I don't know maybe it made you think of your future a little bit differently. Maybe this is going to go a little bit differently than you thought it was going to go in a good way. But now when you're looking five, 10 years ahead, I, I mean, what, what would, 
what would be a place you'd want to end up if you, I mean, if you could like in end times, if you could see 10 years ahead um, and see, I mean, what, what is that looking like? Is this more kind of screenwriting since you're kind of getting involved in that? Is this still doing the short stories and the novels? What, what is success to you in five to 10 years? That's a good question. And I like, I so wish I could see out of the moment that I'm in, but it's so, so hard. Um, like, as you started the question, I was like, Ooh, the kids will be in school. I'm going to take a nap. Um, I don't know. I think that screenwriting would be super interesting. It's not something I'd ever thought about, but now it's a question that I get asked a lot. And I think that it's something that, you know, maybe if um, my stories do continue to get optioned that I will get to try my hand at if I want to at some point. But mostly, I want to keep writing novels and short stories. I feel like, yeah, suddenly having this this opportunity, you know, I can think of all of these ideas for for more novels that I've been like, well, maybe I'll write that, maybe I'll write that. Now it feels like I can write that. That's what I'll do next. I'll write that. So that's what really feels most immediate to me. I was thinking of another question similar to that. If you, what what part of 2020, if you could throw in a sinkhole, that it would come out much better? <laughs> no, I don't need to go into that. But um, no, that's pretty good. It, it's, it, it is hard to kind of uh, put yourself out five and 10 years in terms of what, it's kind of like writing maybe a story. It starts out one place, but ends up being a, in a totally different place, you know, sometimes in what you set out to do. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like, you know, best laid plans, right? Like you can say, I'm going to do this, but who knows? And again, like in 2019, if you had asked me what, like, what are your greatest hopes for, for the coming year? Like, I wouldn't have predicted this. I wouldn't have, you know, again, all I wanted was like, I wanted somebody to to help me get my novel published, even like at another indie press, like just somebody, the novel, you know, and it wound up being so much more. So I do, I feel incredibly lucky. I kind of feel like a jerk actually, because like 2020 is an awful year and this is still, this is still awful. This is, everything is awful. And I'm that jerk who's like, got me a movie deal, which you guys (laughs) have to do in a time of just sorrow. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. So 2020 came out of the sinkhole for you. That's awesome. <laughs> it, it did. Yeah. Um, in a, a personal sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful. Well, for that. that seems a, per- a perfect place to end it. Um, we're, we're, we're out of time. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what I expected, but I just expected you to be a little bit weirder in person <laughs> And, and you just... No, I'm so boring. I'm like the most like, yeah, like... Well, how do you explain that? How do you explain I that know, you you're boring right? and your stories are so weird? What's oh the my gosh. No, I had like the most normal suburban childhood. I'm like a lady in her mid-30s with a couple of kids. Like, there's nothing... Like, I don't even have like dark secrets where I can be like, but really? No. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes and this is the case for a lot of the writers who I know who are very normal people, but live this sort of strange life of the mind and the weird twistiness of what's going on in their brain comes out in their art in ways that's like, you wrote what? Uh, Maybe a little Shirley Jackson kind of a thing. 
Yes. Oh, I love her so much. She's another influence for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because she had a fairly normal life and her stories were definitely uh, on the weird side. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, again, it was really great talking to you. Well, and before we go, I'm wondering if we should, uh, where are your, could somebody get your oh, right. yes. stuff here in Spokane? And uh, if you have uh, an online site or something like that where they could... Um, see your work and, and maybe order books and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a website and there's some stories uh, linked to it that you can read for free if you're not the book buying type. Uh, it's just lanacrow.com, L-E-Y-N-A-K-R-O-W.com. Um, Auntie's usually has the story collection, although I think like the, so it was in its second printing and I feel like that printing might've run out um, because uh, a friend who works at Wishing Tree was telling me that it's been on like back order forever. Um, so, uh, so you can order it from all the usual places, but it might not actually exist anywhere right now. I don't know. I should text my editor. <laughs> well, that's a great problem to have. Yeah, that is a good problem. Yeah, well, congratulations, yeah. and it was great talking to you, and I will see you on Friday. All Sounds right. good. Thanks so much, guys. This was fun. Yeah, see thank you. you.